Hi, I'm Helena Cobbin, the owner of Just World Books. On January 26th, I sat down here in Washington, D.C. with Ambassador Chaz W. Freeman, Jr., the author of America's Misadventures in the Middle East, which is a broad and intelligent sharing of much of the expertise that Chaz Freeman gathered during a long and distinguished career in the U.S. Foreign Service, culminating in a position as U.S. Ambassador to Saudi Arabia, after which he was Assistant Secretary of Defense. Chaz Freeman's book, America's Misadventures in the Middle East, is now newly available to readers in Australia and the United Kingdom in addition to the United States. And I urge you to go to our website, www.justworldbooks.com, to find out how you can buy it. In the interview, Chaz Freeman and I discussed the prospects for U.S. policy in the Middle East region, especially towards Iran and the Israel-Palestine issue, during this election year here in Washington. He also gave a wise assessment of the effects of the Arab Spring. Here's how our discussion went. Chaz, we've got a a presidential election this year, obviously. We're starting off with these rambunctious uh, Republican primaries, so we've got a a lot further to go with the whole process. Do you see this affecting stability in the Middle East in any particular ways? Well, certainly the Republican candidates, uh, by their unanimous, uh, with the exception of Ron Paul, their unanimous um, sponsorship of bombing of Iran, their uh, anti-Palestinian attitudes, uh, and indeed their Islamophobia, some of them more uh, strongly inclined that way than others, uh, basically are laying uh, a foundation for failure in U.S. foreign policy if any of them are elected. Um, the Republican uh, policies on the Middle East, frankly, do not seem to be at all thought out. Uh, so I think the uh, Republican candidates uh, are uh, lining out uh, policies which are intended to appease or appeal uh, to uh, extreme uh, views in the United States which are attached to money. Uh, They're not thinking about uh, serious policies to be implemented in the Middle East. But in the course of making the statements that they are about bombing Iran, um, dismissing uh, Palestinian nationalism as a myth, uh, and uh, associating themselves with Islamophobic attitudes, they are, in fact, uh, laying a foundation for further failure in American policy should any of them be elected. Realistically, though, I've been in this country now for 30 years, and every presidential election in particular, one hears you know, this drumbeat of um, kind of generally pro-Israeli rhetoric coming, especially from the opposition party. And when they're in power, they don't always um, follow through on what they've promised during the election. But in the meantime, they have had the, quite frequently the, the effect of pushing the sitting president in one direction or another. Do you see that happening right now? Um, I think this is different. Uh, Yes, uh, one always hears a great deal of uh, pro-Israeli rhetoric, Uh, but this is the first time that we've had an election where it is alleged that the president is not pro-Israeli. And uh, there is an effort being made to make uh, the issue of uh, Israel and uh, the degree of commitment to its security uh, a divisive issue in our, in our politics. Uh, this is new. 
Uh, I don't think this is particularly influencing Mr. Obama. I think uh, he has been more influenced by uh, his humiliation by uh, Mr. Netanyahu uh, and the uh, the Kud supporters here in the United States, uh, and by his uh, endless pursuit for money to run his campaign, uh, which means that he has his hand out and uh, has been forced into taking positions he may or not, may not personally agree with. Do you see this as having real consequences, possibly, during this year? Well, I think the major consequences, if there are such, uh, are likely to be with respect to Iran, uh, because um, it's very clear that, uh, again, uh, those minority of the uh, American Jewish community and uh, and their sympathizers in, among the evangelical Christian movement who favor an assault on Iran uh, have taken advantage of the election year uh, and Mr. Obama's weakness uh, in that context uh, to push their agenda of an attack on Iran very, very far. Um, and uh, Mr. Netanyahu and his government it seems to me, have quite skillfully used this uh, weakness in the United States and their own threats uh, to make it almost inevitable that were Israel to uh, ignite a war with Iran uh, or Iran uh, to react to the uh, uh, extreme pressure that is being put on it by uh, taking some overt action that is a casus belli, um, that uh, the United States would have to come in on Israel's side. And that, in fact, is the Israeli strategy. Uh, they have been claiming that uh, uh, if uh, we don't do for them what they are unable to do, uh, they will attempt to do it on their own. Uh, there is something preposterous about that. Uh, but uh, the threat, uh, because if it were carried out, would ha it would have such catastrophic effects on global energy prices and the global economy, the threat has been effective in uh, pushing the United States and Europe into taking ever more extreme economic uh, measures against Iran, and to making the United States uh, in particular uh, an inevitable participant in any Israeli-Iranian war. Now, in your, in your super book, America's Misadventures in the Middle East, you have a great section of the book titled in defense of diplomacy and intelligence, which I do recommend that everybody go and read. Um, in there, you seem to be looking mainly at the kind of the deformation of the official intelligence analysis process that fed into and led up to the invasion of Iraq. Um, do you see anything similar happening now in terms of intelligence analysis in this country, or do you still, do you have basic um, confidence that the process is not being deformed? Well, I think there are really two parts to that. Um, I think the intelligence community and the analysts are trying very hard to uh, retain their integrity and uh, refrain from endorsing some of the extreme and unfounded views that politicians uh, are expressing on the subject of Iran. Uh, therefore, for example, they've been quite careful to state that uh, while Iran is uh, certainly putting in place all of the elements of a nuclear uh, program that could support 
the fielding of a weapon. It had, does not appear to have actually made a decision or uh, to have initiated a program to build it and, and field a weapon. Uh, so I think the analysts uh, and the intelligence community are trying to be uh, realistic and truthful. The problem is that intelligence is essentially information that's relevant to statecraft. And if those in charge of statecraft find reality inconvenient and the descriptions of it by analysts uh, politically incorrect, uh, then they show an alarming capacity in this country uh, and elsewhere, um, evidenced by George Bush's rush into war in Iraq, which I do discuss in, in the book America's Misadventures in the Middle East at some length. Um, they've shown an alarming capacity to invent their own interpretations of the information uh, and to distort uh, what the analysts are in fact telling them. So I don't think we have, uh, this time, the sort of uh, uh, stampede to support uh, predetermined policy uh, positions that we did uh, on the issue of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Um, I think the, the intel intelligence community was embarrassed by that, and they're trying to hold the line. But I think the politicians uh, are indifferent to the line. In fact, they hate the fact that the intelligence does not bear out their own prejudiced views, and so they say what they will. The national intelligence estimates have, you know, said fairly straightforwardly over the past couple of years that, you know, there's no evidence that Iran has a, a current ongoing nuclear weapons program. But then politicians tend to take the latest analysis from the IAEA or someplace else and use whatever they consider to be convenient. Actually, the, that uh, report by the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency to which you refer it doesn't say at all what the press uh, portrayed it as, as saying. Uh, there's no new information in that report, and it doesn't alter the universal judgment of those who've looked carefully at the question that Iran, in fact, uh, has held back from making uh, a firm decision on a nuclear weapon. Uh, having said that, uh, it's certainly the case that the United States and Israel, um, whether in that order or the other order, uh, uh, and now Europe, are giving the Iranians every conceivable reason to develop a nuclear deterrent. Including the, by launching what could be described as acts of war, the assassinations of, of uh, civilians in, inside Tehran and so well, on. By any standard of international law, those are acts of international terrorism, state terrorism, uh, and they are a casus belli. They would justify a retaliatory response from Iran, um, and uh, therefore they are uh, a justification for, for war. And people seem to forget in this context that uh, uh, as weak as Iran is in many respects, uh, it's a large, very important country with a proud history and a somewhat neurotic political uh, system. Uh, but uh, Iran is, uh, it may be weak in conventional military terms, uh, but it is not without options. Uh, and uh, it is the case that if put in a sufficiently desperate situation, uh, animals, human beings, uh, and countries uh, will often do things that under normal circumstances uh, they would consider to be uh, far too, too risky. Uh, one thinks of Japan 
reacting to American sanctions intended, intended to cripple Japan. Japanese believed they would cripple Japan. Uh, and uh, Japan reacted uh, by attacking Pearl Harbor, which is something really no one had thought uh, would, would, would be possible. So Iran uh, may be driven by the uh, sanctions, which are seen as a substitute for war, into it doing something. And um, the Israelis, I think, uh, are looking for Iran to do something in order to uh, enlist the United States in attacks on Iran's nuclear program, whether it's weaponized or not. You were um, the Assistant Secretary of Defense in the early 90s in a period of, well, ramping down the Cold War in, a, in essence. And, and prior to that, you were, you were the ambassador in Saudi Arabia during Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. So I'm assuming that you know quite a bit about military planning and, and how it affects the Gulf. Tell us what you think um, could happen, for example, if there were an incident at sea. Might it just escalate very rapidly? Um, under normal circumstances, uh, there are a very large number of small uh, uh, Iranian uh, naval vessels uh, armed with cruise missiles uh, and torpedoes that are operating in the Gulf. And the United States Navy is also there in force, as is the British Navy and some other NATO uh, contingents. Uh, it would be very easy for an accident to occur uh, to set off a firefight which expanded uh, to a general uh, combat situation. But in a way, uh, the concern really ought to be less about uh, the, a clash between the navies because navies know how to limit and control uh, escalation from that. Uh, the real problem is, of course, the danger to commercial shipping, uh, specifically oil tankers, which must pass through a very narrow strait, the Straits of Hormuz, which are at their narrowest point, uh, 21 miles wide, about 30 kilometers uh, wide. And um, ships passing through that narrow point in the two designated uh, shipping lanes are easily uh, shot at from the shore. Um, with cruise missiles, even with artillery. And Iran has some 2,000 mines which it could deploy in those narrow waterways. And the uh, United States and other navies have quite limited uh, mine clearing capacity. So uh, the Iranians could cause enough um, uh, danger uh, to occur to, to shipping that uh, Lloyds of London and others, uh, upon whose insurance the shippers depend, uh, simply would not be prepared to extend insurance at uh, economic rates. And that would have the effect of shutting down a very significant part of the world's oil supply. So I think that's the concern. Uh, of course, people have talked quite a bit about the Straits of Hormuz, especially since that was raised um, by the head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Um, and other Iranian politicians then kind of tried to ramp back the um, rhetoric a little bit. But... As you said, in the case of Japan, nobody thought, nobody thought they were coming to Pearl Harbor. Um, and, of course, we, we might see something very unexpected from Iran as well. So, I think you can see the uh, dynamic here where the European Union has um, decided to put on uh, sanctions with effect from June uh, on Iran, uh, Iran's oil exports to them. 
Uh, and in retaliation, the Iranians uh, appear to be uh, considering uh, preempting that uh, uh, ban on imports by putting on an export ban of their own. Um, so uh, the, it comes back to the point that uh, even though that is counterproductive and very damaging to Iran, uh, under some circumstances, uh, the Iranians will be prepared to accept a damage or injury in order to make a point. Uh, and I think this is a very dangerous uh, situation. And uh, as we go farther forward in the year and uh, the American political process unfolds, uh, the uh, freedom of the president to uh, stand aside from some conflict with Iran uh, goes down. Um, that is to say, uh, uh, he cannot afford, in the face of strong Republican pressure, uh, to attack Iran, to, re to refrain from reacting to any incident that occurs. And it would be very easy to uh, manufacture an incident. There's quite a history of that in the Middle East. If you could sit down with President Obama right now and uh, give him some advice about Iran, what would it be? It would be to pull back from this constant ratcheting up of sanctions, pull back from the abyss, uh, and uh, attempt to open the sort of dialogue with Iran that uh, uh, he attempted to begin, I think, at the outset of his uh, term, but which was never really, uh, never really tried. Uh, in other words, uh, treat Iran not as a nuclear problem, but as a country, uh, a neuralgic country, a neurotic country, perhaps, a country with, that broods on the insults of, of history and the difficulties of its own relationship with Russians, British, and Americans, uh, but a country that uh, in the end is not irrational uh, and seeks uh, respect for its position in the region. Elsewhere in the region right now, since we are talking here toward the end of January and it's the first anniversary of um, the Arab Spring, certainly in its Tunisian and Egyptian um, manifestations, how do you think, in broad terms, the events of the past year have changed the dynamic in the region? Oh, I think they've made immense uh, difference in, differences, uh, <clears throat> not only in the relationship of government to um, to, to peoples who are governed. Um, governments now, whether they're autocratic or not, um, feel obliged to be responsive to public opinion in a way that they weren't before. Um, this may produce improvements in governance, although that remains to be seen. Um, so that is one change that uh, means that governments no longer have the freedom to toady to foreign interests in the way that they did in the past. They must now defer to their own uh, domestic opinion uh, to a much greater extent. Uh, another difference, of course, has been uh, the uh, emergence of uh, Turkey as a major diplomatic force throughout uh, the region. Uh, Turkey representing to Arabs uh, a democracy that is uh, respectful of religion, even if secular. Uh, and uh, therefore something of a model uh, to the more moderate, even among the Islamists. Um, a third major development has been the discovery by the world of something that might have been foreseen from the experience in Palestine and Palestinian politics, namely that the Democrats are largely Islamist. 
and the democracy and Islamism, while uh, they are different things, uh, are not the natural antagonists that uh, many imagine. It is simply misleading to say, as much of the commentary has done, that an Islamist gain is a loss for democracy. Islamists have yet to prove their their own comfort with democratic norms, but they're not inherently in, in conflict. Uh, so I think these are major issues. Uh, perhaps a fourth um, is the, uh, the fact that since governments are now more representative of popular opinion, uh, since um, Turkey has emerged as an independent actor in the region, uh, and since Islamism and the passions that it contains have become the major political force in the region, um, Israel is more isolated than ever. Uh, and one could envisage uh, the current uh, events uh, uh, turning out uh, uh, in a way that would be very sobering for uh, Israeli uh, decision makers. You have uh, written a lot in your book, America's Misadventures in the Middle East, about the um, follies and shortcomings um, of U.S. policy toward the Palestine issue. Um, do you see the possibility for any progress at all this year? And if there is no progress this year, what, what's it going to look like for the next president coming in, you know, whether it's President Obama or some other coming in in January 2013 after the election? Um, will there still be a two-state solution to be salvaged? Uh, those are, again, several questions. I think, <laughs> I think um, uh, there will be no progress this year, uh, certainly none led by the United States. In fact, uh, the nature of the problem has changed. Um, the Palestinians, although they don't seem to be uh, terribly uh, uh, firm or adroit in this, uh, seem to have judged that their best bet is not to work with the United States or indeed with any Western country uh, per se, but rather to seek through multilateral diplomacy at the United Nations and elsewhere uh, to um, confront Israel with the conscience of the world. Uh, the pressure necessary to move Israel will not come from Americans, but it could come from the international community if sufficiently well organized. And also that the use of multilateral institutions as Palestine acquires more and more of the uh, attributes and in in recognition as a state uh, could, uh, uh, could put pressure on Israel. For example, the use of the International Court of Justice or other instruments which are available to states uh, to raise some of the obvious issues about uh, uh, Israeli activities that are violations of the law of war or humanitarian law in general. Uh, so I think that's where the game is headed this year, um, and we will see how far that goes. I don't see the administration, the Obama administration, as being able to do anything but resist that and probably resist that fruitlessly uh, and without uh, success, uh, because I think this is quite well grounded now internationally and is likely to take on forces it as it moves forward. A new administration, if it's a Republican administration, given what's been said by the various candidates for office, uh, would not be terribly inclined to renew 
American leadership in pursuit of a two-state solution, uh, if inclined at all to do that. Um, if Mr. Obama is uh, re-elected, and if he wishes in his second term to press forward with the task he began and, and abandoned in this term, uh, I think he's got a very hard road to hoe. Um, I don't think the United States has much credibility left in the region or with either of the parties, either Israel or uh, the Palestinians. Um, that would have to be rebuilt, and it would, that would require fairly dramatic confrontations and initiatives that uh, would be politically very disruptive uh, here um, and therefore very difficult for, uh, for a president to, to mount. So my own feeling is that, uh, quite aside from the more fundamental question of whether a two-state solution is at all possible anymore, or whether we have uh, moved beyond that, uh, that is, the Israeli successes in occupying, annexing, uh, displacing, disempowering Palestinians have brought the whole area of Palestine effectively under a sig single sovereignty. Um, and we're not talking anymore about uh, two states, but we're talking about human rights and civil rights within a single state. If that's the situation that emerges, which I think is more likely than not, uh, then uh, the question of the relevance of the United States is further diminished, uh, because uh, that is the sort of issue the international community uh, historically has dealt with uh, more effectively than the U.S. I think of the example of South Africa, uh, where it was the British Commonwealth, not the UK, uh, and it was the international community as a whole, not the United States, uh, which um, brought home to Afrikaners how unacceptable their behavior was and uh, led ultimately to a crisis of conscience, the release of Nelson Mandela, and elections that brought about majority rule. So um, I think your question, the answers are... There will probably be no progress this year. If there is progress, it will not come from American leadership. Next year, whoever is the president will be hard-pressed to resume American leadership. We're probably talking about a game that is internationally led, and it probably is no longer in the context of a two-state solution, but rather one state. Ambassador Freeman, Jazz, thank you very much. You're most welcome.